If you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is where we'll begin this part of our worship. Matthew chapter 19. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We're so glad that you're here. And I just want to acknowledge that we're just excited to meet you and get to know you. And if there's some way we can help you or anything we can do for you, we'd love for you to let us know about that. But we're glad that you're here. I also wanted to let you know that you have a new sister in Christ. Uh, Yesterday, Juliana Rodriguez was baptized into Christ, and uh, we're just so excited about that. Of course, she's been with us for a while, but we're just rejoicing with the angels in heaven that she has made that choice uh, to put on Christ in baptism. So if you haven't, uh, go say something to her, give her a big hug. Sorry, Juliana, you're going to get a lot of hugs, but that's okay. That's what we do, right? Let's begin in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1. Matthew 19 and verse 1, the text says, I'm sorry, I want verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus intends us to stay married. He says in verse 6, What God has joined together, let not man separate. People don't get married expecting to get divorced, especially Christians. And yet, divorce persists and even sometimes involves Christians. So why would that be? It seems to me that the issue is not really that Christians need to be told over and over again not to divorce. I believe most Christians know Jesus' teaching and are familiar with Jesus' expectation that divorce is not something that we should do. No, it appears to me that what often happens is that circumstances conspire and marriages and the relationships devolve to such a degree that we begin to entertain the idea that divorce might be the best option or at least it's a possibility that it could be better. So while we always have to emphasize what Jesus says about divorce, it seems to me that we need to think about how we can work in our marriages so that they don't reach that point. So we don't get to a point where we begin to say, well, you know what? Divorce may be my best option in this situation, even though I know Jesus has forbidden it. So what I want to do for a few minutes this morning, we're going to call divorce prevention that I want us to spend some time thinking about how we can prevent our marriages from devolving to that point and maintain the marriages. Divorce is an awful thing. Divorce cuts up families and destroys our emotions. Even people who are worldly people who have no inkling of what Jesus says about divorce would say it is an awful thing and one to be avoided. So can't we do something about that? I want us to think about that for a few minutes this morning. Now, first of all, I want to talk about what we can do pre-marriage. And I want to ask the question, if you are not yet married, but considering marriage, the question to answer is the question, are we both all in? We have some people here who are engaged to be married. We have some people who are dating and maybe considering marriage. I expect that most of our young people expect someday to be married. And so this is the question to ask in the pre-marriage stage because... Again, most people don't go into a marriage expecting to get divorced and that someday it will end. Instead, we go in with high expectations. So the question is, are we both all in? Let's read again verse 6 of Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 6. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. That is the command. So the expectation is if we're going to be married, I'm expecting to be married to you for the rest of our lives. And the question is, is that what you are agreeing to when I'm discussing this with my potential spouse? Are they all in and am I all in? Are you comfortable with that idea that we will continue to be married even through difficulty? The Bible teaches that marriage is a covenant, a solemn promise that I will do certain things. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Or Proverbs 2 and verse 16, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forgets the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So there is a covenant, I will be there to do this, and that is the promise I make in marriage. And I need to know before I ever get married that my mate and I are both all in, that we're going to do this for the rest of our lives. Now there is an exception. Jesus talks about in verse 9 of Matthew 19, the text we're open to, the idea that there might be sexual immorality in a marriage. But short of that, and perhaps sometimes even through situations like that, what we are saying when we get married is, I'm all in. I'm going to be with you for the rest of our lives. Premarriage is also a time to consider. Is this the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? Not just some of my life, not just a few years, not just to have fun for a little while, but the rest of my life. Every day, every week, every month, every year from now on. Is that what I want? Am I all in? And so it's a question, it's a time when we need to consider, are there some incompatibilities that would make that really challenging? I need to say something here about spiritual influences. Is the person that I'm considering being married to, are they going to help me spiritually? That is a question, it's a pre-marriage question. Is this a person who now I'm now inviting to be the primary spiritual influence on me for the rest of my time on earth? Is this a person who's going to help me in that role? Are they going to be a blessing to me? Are they a Christian? Are they committed to their faith? Is their faith like my faith? Do we believe in the same way? Are they going to help me or hurt me in that way? Particularly, I think we need to be aware of the fact that faith can be a source of conflict in a marriage. When we don't agree and we're not helping one another or we're going in different directions, this is the time to iron those questions out. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that we must marry a Christian, but to me it seems supremely unwise to make a lifelong decision and not consider the spiritual dimensions of it. This is going to be an influence on us. I am certain that we all know of people who have been influenced away from the Lord by their mate. This is the time to consider that. Are we both all in? So that's the pre-marriage part. That was just sort of an introduction. Let's talk about how we can prevent divorce. The first thing we're going to say about divorce prevention is the idea of maintaining the spark. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5. Maintain the spark. What we're talking about is romantic love. And romantic love is the fuel of marriage. Romantic love is what makes marriage enjoyable and what gives us energy to tackle the parts of marriage that are more challenging. 
it is important for us to keep that fire alive. Proverbs 5 and verse 15. Proverbs 5 and 15 says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you with delight at all times and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So Solomon is referring to the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, and he uses these metaphors like drink water from your own cistern and water from your own well. He talks about being intoxicated with her love, rejoice with the wife of your youth. He talks about how this should be the passion that exists in a marriage. And I want to emphasize as we read the text like this, that to keep the spark in our marriages We need to focus on our mate. Focus on them. You see that focus in this text. He says, let her be your focus. Let her be your delight. Let her be the one who intoxicates you. That there should be a spark in marriage that comes from focus on one another. And particularly, it seems to me it's important to say this, we don't just focus on the bad things about them or the things we don't like. Focus on the good in your mate seems to me that when couples have a crisis and they begin to turn on one another, it, it almost sounds like to hear them talk about one another like, how did you guys end up together in the first place? You obviously can't stand anything about each other. And what happens is as, as something happens in, in the marriage and things begin to devolve, one of the others begins to focus on the things they don't like And they begin to criticize, and then then the mate begins to focus on the things they don't like, and and back and forth they go, and suddenly we're focused on one another in the wrong way. This is a passage about learning what you delight in your mate and focusing on that. There are things that you love about your mate. What attracts you to them? What makes you happy when you're with them? What do you like most about them? Focus on those things. We're all going to have flaws. There will always be trouble, but those are not the things that keep the spark alive. Maintain the spark by focusing and being intoxicated with the love of your mate. And part of that means that I'm not going to let anybody else in where only my wife belongs. Look in verse 20 there that we just read, Proverbs 5 and verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Turn the page to chapter 6. In Proverbs 6 and verse 25. And this section of Proverbs often has the picture of an immoral or forbidden woman. As a picture of moving outside the marriage for sexual attention. Proverbs 6 and verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Don't even start down the path to her house. He says in verse 25, don't desire her beauty in your heart. That there are things, there is attention that only belongs to my mate. And I need to limit that to her. But if we want to prevent divorce 
This is where it begins. Divorce prevention begins in my heart. Don't desire her beauty. Don't go after something else in your heart. Let your heart be committed where your mouth has already said you would be committed. It's important that we know ourselves well enough to know what attracts us to the opposite sex. And then to devote that attention and that attraction completely to our mate. So, for example, if I know that I am attracted because I look at certain people or I'm attracted by looks, then I need to be careful about the way I look at others. If I know that I'm attracted to people because they pay attention to me, then I need to be careful about how much attention I allow to be paid to me. There are certain things that only my mate should provide me. I need to keep my heart devoted to her. So there's more here than just avoiding adultery. That's not the idea in Proverbs 5 and 6. The idea here is the spark is alive because I have reserved my romantic interests solely for my mate. No one else is allowed there. It is only her. All that attention, all that focus is hers. Maintain the spark. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. It's a rather long text, but... We'll put it on the board here. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the spark that we're talking about involves the sexual relationship and romantic love. It makes marriage enjoyable and exciting. And Paul says you need to be sure you don't forget about one another, that you are taking care of one another, that you are connected. There needs to be a spark. I believe if you've ever read through the, the book of the Song of Solomon, it's the same point. The Song of Solomon is a book in which a married couple is bantering back and forth, and they are enjoying themselves. They're delighted with one another. They're praising one another. Because being in love is fun. And I think sometimes Christians need to remember that God gave us married love and romantic love to enjoy. So keep that going in your home. But you know, something happens in time. Maybe it's that the novelty wears off. Maybe it's that we get all these problems and challenges that attack our families and our marriages. Maybe it's that people just keep changing. But it's hard to maintain the spark. I want to read you a couple of passages just to sort of change our perspective about this for a moment. Turn with me quickly. Let's go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 and verse 3 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So he says older women are to be teachers and to teach the young women to love their children and to love their husbands. The implication here is that that love is not always natural. And that it needs to be taught. And they need to be shown how to continue to show love to their husbands and children. The implication here, in three words, love 
is work. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That teaches us in three words that love is sacrifice. If I love my wife like Jesus loves his church, I can hold nothing back. It all belongs to her. I give it all to her. So, love is work and love is sacrifice. That sounds a lot different from what we were just talking about, right? Love is playful and fun. And it seems to me that this is what people mean when they say we just fell out of love. I just feel nothing for them anymore. What they mean is love stopped being playful and fun and started being work and sacrifice. That's hard. It's hard to live in a marriage where we have to work and we have to sacrifice for one another. But what we are talking about this morning is that if we do truly love our mate, we will keep the spark going so that that work and sacrifice is not the chore. It could be otherwise. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> Here, Paul describes what love really looks like. And I think it is a helpful text to help us in our marriage. So I understand that the primary thrust of 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with local churches and peace and love in a local church. But I want us to read this through the lens of how this can affect our marriages. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The thrust of these verses is that love is not selfish. Love is not about what I get from you. It is not about my way. It's not about boasting or envying. It's not arrogant. It's just not about me. And the essence of maintaining the spark in our marriages is understanding that my marriage is not about my mate making me happy. Can I say it again? My marriage is not about my mate making me happy. What love is, is about me focusing on her, and my goal is to make her her happy. And it is one of those beautiful Bible paradoxes that when we stop worrying so much about us being happy and start trying to make others happy, guess what happens? Then we become happy too. When I love her and show her the devotion she deserves, then she is much more willing to show it to me. I also want to say before I leave this point, verse 7 talks about love bearing and believing and hoping and enduring all things. The durability of love. That love doesn't give up. And I want to say, I know that there are people in our audience that have been married a lot longer than I have. And I am sure that at different points in life, all of us have had frustrations and doubts and anxieties about our marriages. Particularly, it seems to me that we worry that the spark is gone. How are we ever going to get it back? 
And I just want to say, as I look at love bearing and believing and enduring and hoping all things, I just want to say, it seems to me that this passage teaches us we can always make this work. It's never too far gone to salvage. It's never something where we say, well, there's just too much water under the bridge. We've gone too far. If we're both willing to invest, we can build that spark together. Second thing, don't worry, all the points are not as long as the first point. The second thing we can do to prevent divorce is communicate. Love has to be expressed in communication. I want you to go with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, love has to be expressed in communication. The Bible has a lot to say about the way we communicate with one another. It is interesting to me that one of the lenses through which the New Testament addresses the husband-wife relationship is concern about the husband being overbearing toward his wife. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. 1 Peter 3 and 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There is a, another verse in Colossians chapter 3 that talks about husbands, love your wives, and, and do not be harsh with them. The idea of being harsh, and here the idea of showing honor as to a weaker vessel, to me indicates that, that God's concerned about a kind of machoism, where men decide that it's our job to kind of just be in charge, we get to do what we want, and the women, just gotta, they've just got to respond to us. I mean, whatever I want to do, that's what you've got to do. And I've heard at times Christians take the perspective that because God teaches us that the husband is the head of the wife in Ephesians 5, that therefore it's my right to do whatever I want and you just have to submit and obey. That is certainly not the tone of what we just read. He says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. There is an honor, there is an understanding. There is a kind of communication that God deems appropriate in a marriage. Live with her with understanding, by the way, also indicates that there are differences between the husband and the wife that have to be negotiated. We've got to figure out how to live together in harmony, how to meet each other's needs, how to make peace, and the way you do that is to communicate, is to talk through what's going on in a marriage. We have very different needs. And the way we work out who needs what, who's happy and who's not, is to communicate. Particularly, I have found, I'll just speak for Jacob for a moment. I have found that if I will be less defensive and start listening to my wife, listen is a communication word, by the way, start listening to my wife, she is telling me what she needs. So I was writing this sermon, in fact, I, I screened most of this by Sarah, um, I was thinking through some of the things that we have fought about. We've been married a little over 14 years. And some of the fights that really stick out to me, or disagreements, she told me to say, disagreements, <laughs> were about silly things. Things that don't really matter. And when we would have a disagreement, it would be, I would immediately become defensive and stop listening. 
And then she would be telling me, this is why this matters to me. This is why this is important. And I would say, well, that's ridiculous. Communication is the problem. And for me, it was very often that I wasn't really listening to what my wife was telling me. It's very easy for us to become selfish and defensive. It's very easy for us to stop listening or to stop talking. And when we do, we lose the ability to communicate. Here is what is needed in this relationship. Communication is how we learn what's going on in the heart of our mate. And that makes it essential. Especially as we go through life and we grow and change. And we need to know where is the other one's heart at? What's important to them? Are they happy in this situation? What can we do differently? And if I'm going to love her as Christ loved the church, I need to know where her heart is. And the way that happens is communication. So it becomes important that we learn to talk to one another and that we also learn to listen to one another. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. A great marriage verse. Slow to speak, slow to anger. Be careful not to fly off the handle at one another. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Communicate. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to look at a couple of places here that I believe will be very helpful as we talk about how marriage communication goes. Matthew 5 and verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Matthew 5, 21, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be reliable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled to your brother, he says. How is that going to happen? Communication is how it's going to happen. We're going to talk about it. We're going to work it out by talking. Poor communication, raka. Calling someone names, not going to work. Jesus is saying there is a good and a bad way to communicate. And that communication is key when we're dealing with anger. Paul says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. The focus in this text, in both of these texts, Ephesians 4 and Matthew 5, put them side by side. The focus is don't let anger fester. In marriages, we must communicate so that we don't stay angry, so that anger doesn't become hostility and bitterness over time. Communicate when you're angry. There will be conflicts in our marriages. There are going to be conflicts about money and about the kids and how we discipline them and choices about where we live and what we're going to do. Decisions that have to be made that affect everybody. Communication is how you navigate those decisions. If we can't communicate, we cannot successfully make those choices in a way that pleases everyone. But probably the most important thing I could say about communication is the need that we have in our marriages for complete honesty. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. Look a little further here. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says you need to be known for your honesty. Say yes when you mean yes. Say no when you mean no. Let your word be exactly what it appears to be. Be honest. Now, if that is essential outside marriage, and it is, how much more in a marriage that I can be trusted when I talk to my wife? How much more important is it that we can be trusted when we talk about money? Or when we talk about whether we're attracted to someone of the opposite sex? Or whether we talk about whether we're happy, how we really feel, are we still angry? All of these are areas where we need to know the truth. Even if it hurts us and upsets us, we still need to know the truth. And to communicate, we must make a commitment in our marriages that we will be honest people. That is something Christians are expected to be. And it is something that will bless marriages that are patterned after what Jesus says Christians should be. As we grow and change, and we will grow and change as we get older... Communication is how we stay connected through the years, through the difficulties. The last thing I want to say about divorce prevention that we can do is follow Jesus together. Follow Jesus together. That is, if we want to try to protect our homes against divorce, it will be a blessing to us if both of us are truly committed to growing in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 7, I, we looked at earlier. I'll just put it on the board now. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What Peter is saying is that our marriages affect our spiritual lives. How you treat your wife affects your prayers, and your prayers affect how you treat your wife. Our marriages and our spiritual life go together, and that can go in the other way. When our spiritual life is suffering, it can make our marriage suffer. But when our spiritual lives are going well, when we are following close to Jesus, it will bless our marriages. So, in the New Testament, when we talk about marriage as an ideal, we always go back to Jesus. Have you noticed that? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Even fathers... Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All of it goes back to Jesus. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the standard. In our marriages, even though Jesus wasn't married, with our children, even though Jesus didn't have children, you have the same pattern of reflecting Jesus and his values in the personal relationships that we have. So, my marriage will be blessed. I can help to prevent divorce. If I am following Jesus and my mate is following Jesus and we follow Jesus together. The reason is we will not just be getting older. We will be growing. If I develop the fruit of the Spirit, it will bless my marriage. Now, it will help my friends and neighbors. It will help my brothers and sisters at church if I become more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and gentle and faithful and self-controlled. That will help everybody around me, but won't it help my mate the most? Let Jesus teach you how to be honest. 
Let Jesus teach you how to control yourself. Let Jesus teach you how to view and use money, how to view the opposite sex, how to be content where you are. And as you grow in those things day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and your mate grows in those things, your marriage will be stronger and better because God is at work making us all into the kind of people that are much easier to live with because we're much more like Jesus. When two people are connected to to Christ and both trying to grow, it seems to me that divorce is not really a part of that equation. Now that's not to say, and nothing I've talked about this morning is intended to say, that we can ever truly prevent the possibility of divorce. Because divorce involves another person, and we can only control what we can control about ourselves. But what I am trying to say is these are things that will make marriage happy and joyful and peaceful. And if we can continue that kind of maintenance, it will help it where those kinds of discussions about divorce won't really be a part of our thinking. Would you pray with me about it? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the time that you blessed us with this morning to open your word and to think about what you've said to us about marriage, what you've said to us about divorce, and how we can try to live in obedience to you. Father, I pray for the marriages in this congregation. I pray that you will bless each one of us as we try to live as husbands and wives, that we will respect your word that we will remain faithful to one another, that we'll be willing to communicate, that we'll grow together. Father, I pray for those who are struggling in their marriages right now, who need help, who are discouraged, who are frustrated, and I ask your blessing on them. And Father, I ask that you'll help them to Reach out to those around them who can help. Father, I pray for those who are considering marriage, those who are just beginning marriage. I ask your blessings on those new families and new homes, that they can live in a way that honors you, and that through their marriage they can show their faithfulness to you. We thank you so much, Father, for this gift that you've given us. I pray that you'll help us to be humble and faithful to the things you've revealed to us so that we can enjoy this in this life and that we can enjoy it forever in the life to come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who needs to obey the gospel. We haven't spoken this morning about what you need to do to become a Christian, but we want you to know that we are always ready at any moment to help someone to begin a new life in Christ. We have a new sister in Christ She has done what we all have done in order to become a disciple of Jesus. Turn away from sin, put our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and be buried with him in baptism and have those sins washed away. And if you're ready to take that step this morning, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.